Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 14. The title to our message today is The House of Slavery. And as you're turning to Exodus chapter 1, please remember that the scripture says that the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom. Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have declared yourself to be the light of the world and that he who walks in you, he who believes in you will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of day. And so, Lord, we pray as your people who believe in you, that you would give us light now as we seek to understand your word and your will for our lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, please be seated. So last week we saw how the children of Israel were fulfilling the cultural mandate to Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Those first seven verses of Exodus showed us why Egypt was opposing Israel. Ancient Egypt and new Egypt today are engaged in a war against children. Why? Well, because as God's people multiply and fill the earth, Christ's kingdom is expanding. Families are an essential, the essential building block of culture. Families establish an alternative culture, one built on the covenant of grace. And when this kingdom of Christ grows, all other kingdoms are threatened. And so those first seven verses showed us why Egypt opposed Israel and why the world opposes the church today. Now, this morning we're looking at the second seven verses, verses 8 through 14, and now we see why God opposes Egypt. When Pharaoh and all of Egypt saw that these Israelites were growing faster than they were, 
Egypt transformed into a house of slavery. In fact, when God delivered Israel out of Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai. The very first thing he said from Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And and here's a maxim. Nations who do not fear the Lord, if they last long enough, will always, always turn to tyranny and slavery. it's, it's, It's certain as the law of gravity. When a nation doesn't depend upon the power of God, they turn to a raw power of cruelty and depraved um, intentions. And the Lord God, since the very beginning, has opposed this. We just heard uh, Ben read, why, why was the earth flooded? Because God opposed the world who had turned into this den of iniquity. God does not merely punish individuals for uh, rebelling, uh, rebelling against him. He also uh, judges nations. And David calls on God to curse them. In Psalm 58, 6 through 8, he says of magistrates, of civil magistrates, he says, Oh God, break their teeth in their mouth. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. So we arrive now at our big idea again. Um, wicked nations are houses of slavery, which God has always opposed throughout history for the sake of his people. That's what I want to try to demonstrate this morning. And let's begin with our doctrine. So in these first seven verses, we not only have a description of Egypt's wickedness, but we actually have a profile of every wicked nation. Consider seven characteristics of Egypt here and how um, every nation looks like this that has set itself against the Lord. So characteristic number one, characteristic number one, wicked nations will have their names blotted out forever. Wicked nations will have their names blotted out forever. Look at verse eight with me. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, isn't this interesting that Joseph is named, but Pharaoh is not? And this omission here has caused no end of speculation as to who this Pharaoh was. But let's just consider this one fact. Moses knew who this Pharaoh was. He was a contemporary. So then why doesn't he give the name of Pharaoh? It's the most powerful man on earth, the darling of the world, and he goes unnamed. Why? Well, this omission is on purpose. Uh, This omission is both a fulfillment of prophecy and it's a dire warning. Psalm 9, 5 through 6 says, You have rebuked the nations, you have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever. The very memory of them has perished. And and, and you guys should recognize this, that the New Testament picks up on the same theme, doesn't it? Jesus gives a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is named, 
who is not? The rich man. So that's the first characteristic right from the get-go of wicked nations and their rulers that God will cause the very memory of them to perish. Characteristic number two. Wicked nations are covenant breakers. Wicked nations are covenant breakers. The end of verse 8 says that Pharaoh did not know Joseph. Did not know Joseph. So this either means that Pharaoh was ignorant of Joseph saving Egypt, that he didn't know that fact, or that he just simply chose to ignore it. Which one was it? Well, I don't believe that Pharaoh was ignorant at all. Uh, That's actually not how that language is used in in the Bible. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, God tells Israel, he says, you have I only known out of all the families on the earth. God wasn't saying that he was ignorant of the other nations. He was saying that I have a special love for you, my people. Likewise, when Pharaoh says, or when verse 8 says that Pharaoh did not know Joseph, it doesn't mean that Pharaoh was ignorant of him. It means he didn't care. He didn't acknowledge Joseph or the exploits that Joseph had done to save Egypt all those years before. Now, maybe you're not convinced, so just ask yourself, even if Pharaoh was ignorant of what Joseph did, would it have made any difference if he would have found out? Imagine a, an Egyptian official searching the historical archives late at night one night, and he finds, oh, this character Joseph, he saved Egypt, with, and, 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 and Pharaoh made this covenant with him. Would that make a difference with this Pharaoh? No, not at all. This man was a wicked man. He was the seed of the serpent. He was born a liar and a covenant breaker, Psalm 58.3. And so this Pharaoh was breaking covenant with Joseph and with the people of Israel. That's the second characteristic of wicked nations, that they are covenant breakers. Characteristic number three. Wicked nations hate the cultural mandate. Wicked nations hate the cultural mandate. In other words, they wage war against God's command to be fruitful and multiply. Look at verse 9. Pharaoh said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Now, obviously, Egypt was not keeping up with Israel's birth rate. Their own theology of baby-making was apparently not to be fruitful and fill the earth. One author says here, I just can't believe how relevant the scripture is on, on this particular thing. One author says here, Pharaoh declared Egypt had a problem. Overpopulation. This is a recurring myth in history, a political myth. For man, the world is always overpopulated when there are people in it who are disliked, end quote. Our family just got done listening to this biography of Margaret Sanger called Killer Angel. She, of course, was the founder of Planned Parenthood and the most prolific serial killer in the history of the world. One of her greatest lies to advance the cause of abortion 
is that population had to be controlled. She was a daughter of Pharaoh. Overpopulation, beloved, can never, ever, ever be a problem in God's world. It can never. Was God stupid when he said, be fruitful and fill the earth? Did God lose power when people started multiplying? Oh no, where am I going to get all of these resources to feed and clothe these people? That is a lie. So that's the third characteristic of wicked nations and their rulers. They hate the cultural mandate. Characteristic number four, wicked nations demand to be worshipped. Wicked nations demand to be worshipped. Look at verse 10. Pharaoh says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Skip to verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them. They set masters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Now, this, you need to note carefully, this is not a political maneuver. This is a religious maneuver. One author says here that Pharaoh claimed to be the incarnate son of Re, the sun god, who was the primary deity in the Egyptian pantheon. The Egyptians would not serve their own god. They would work for him. In effect, Pharaoh was claiming to be lord over Israel. That's why in verse 11, Masters were set over them. That's why at the end of verse 11, Pharaoh had them build these cities, Pithon and Ramses. These weren't just ordinary cities. These were massive public work projects. They were status enterprises built by slaves so that Pharaoh's glory could be seen in the land. What do we learn from this? We learn that every nation, every nation under the sun worships a god or gods. There's no such thing as neutrality. There's no such thing as some nation out there that's not worshiping. It's an inescapable concept, not whether a nation will worship a god, but simply what god will they worship. Any nation that doesn't worship the Lord, if they exist long enough, will always turn to state worship. Worship of the state. So, so ancient Assyria didn't worship the Lord. Who did they worship? The state, Isaiah 10, 12 through 15. Ancient Babylon didn't worship the Lord. Who did they worship? The state, Isaiah 4, 4 through 14. Ancient Rome didn't worship the Lord. And they worshiped the state as evidenced by the bloody martyrs who refused to say Caesar is Lord. The same thing is seen today in nations such as North Korea, China, and increasingly, of course, America. Because Pharaoh claimed deity, he required that Israel should be forced to serve him. That's the fourth characteristic of wicked nations and their rulers. They claim deity and turn their citizens into slaves. Characteristic number five, wicked nations are covetous. Wicked nations are covetous. Look at verse 10 again. 
Pharaoh says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, if Pharaoh felt so threatened by Israel, why didn't he just kick them out of Egypt? Why did he want to prevent them from escaping the land? Because he was greedy and covetous for their productive value. See, Pharaoh saw dollar signs in keeping um, Israel in slavery. And so he attempted to kill two birds with one stone. So he believed that by enslaving Israel, he not only gained economically from them, but this would certainly discourage them from having more babies. Because who wants to have babies under the bondage of slavery? So that's why dictators today refuse to let any part of their people go free. They are covetous. They are greedy. And that's the fifth characteristic of wicked nations and their rulers. They are exceedingly greedy. Characteristic number six, wicked nations are ruthless. Wicked nations are ruthless. You remember in, in verse seven how there was a sevenfold increase of the people of Israel. Well, there was a sevenfold response of persecution. Look at the seven distinct terms in verses 13 through 14. I'll call them out for you. So they ruthlessly, that's number one, made the people of Israel work, two, as slaves, three, and made their lives bitter, four, with hard, five, service, six, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work, seven, in the field. Now, the number of seven is the number of completion in Scripture. This means that they were perfectly oppressed. And Moses makes this clear by repeating verse 13 in verse 14. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This is also reported in ancient Egyptian texts. Philip Ryken reports that there was a text uh, that illustrated this Egyptian master that traveled to the Nile to check on his slaves. And the master had private bodyguards behind him who were bearing clubs, and grain was demanded of the slaves. And the slave answered, there is none. He was then beaten savagely. His wife was bound in his presence. His children were put in fetters. He was then bound, thrown into a well, submerged, head down. And that's actually pretty light compared to the, the brutal savagery that we're going to see next week when they started throwing their babies in the Nile. But that's the sixth characteristic of wicked nations and their rulers. They are absolutely ruthless. Characteristic number seven. Wicked nations are willfully stupid. They are willfully stupid. In spite of all of this savage abuse, Israel continued to be fruitful and multiply. Verse 12 says, but, now notice the threefold more, the more they were oppressed, 
the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. How was it that Israel continued to multiply in spite of this ruthless slavery, in spite of a parent's natural instinct to not want to give birth under these conditions? What accounts for this? The hand of God. This was the very promise that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he, that he would cause them to be fruitful and multiply. So, so do the mental math. Number one. Egypt oppresses Israel in hopes to lessen their birth rate. Number two, instead of Israel's birth rates going down, it increases, pointing to divine intervention. Number three, as a result, end of verse 12, Egypt is filled with more fear because they know it's God. Number four, so what do they do? Verses 13 and 14, they oppress them more. What does this teach us? That wicked nations are willfully stupid. They can see the hand of God and they don't care. They can see that this leads to destruction and they don't care. That's the seventh characteristic of wicked nations. They are willfully stupid because they knowingly wage war against the God of the universe. So that brings us then to our doctrine. Again, our big idea, wicked nations are houses of slavery, which God is always opposed for the sake of his people. Now, verse 12 in our passage is the first fruits of God's opposition to Egypt. He gives them more babies. The harvest is in the rest of the book. But I want to prove our doctrine from elsewhere in Scripture. So just consider three proofs that God always opposes wicked nations for the sake of his people. So proof number one, the lions, the lions. Please turn with me to 2 Kings 17, 24 through 25. 2 Kings 17, 24 through 25. Now, this is after God had already taken Israel into Assyrian captivity for their disobedience in 722 B.C. And so what the Assyrians did was that they migrated people from every nation into the land of Israel to make it their own. Look at what verse 14 says, 2 Kings 17, 24 through 25. It's verse 24. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuhath, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and they placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed them. God sent lions to this new people because they did not worship the Lord. He punished that new nation for their wickedness. That's proof number one, the lions. Proof number two, famine, beasts, sword, and pestilence. 
famine, beasts, sword, and pestilence. Please turn with me to Ezekiel 14. Ezekiel 14, 12 through 14. Of course, this is a book of prophecy against disobedient Judah for their apostasy, which led to the Babylonian captivity in 587 BC. Here, the Lord is using a lesser to greater argument. He's saying, look, if I'm willing to punish pagan nations for their sin, then certainly I'm willing to punish my own people for their apostasy. So look with me at verse 12, Ezekiel 14, verse 12. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine on it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. Notice in verse 13, he says, if a land sins against me, he means if any nation sins against me, then God may either send famine, verse 13, wild beasts, verse 15, sword, verse 17, or pestilence, verse 19. Do you realize that this verse describes the rise and fall of nations today? Do you realize this describes and explains why there's third world countries? Why developed nations fall? God is opposed to wicked nations who do not revere him and his law. Proof number three, the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. The fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Please turn with me to Luke 21, 20 through 22. Luke 21, 20 through 22. These are Jesus' words as he prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 for their rebellion against the Lord. 21, verse 20. But... When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. And then halfway through verse 23, he says, for there will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. The fall of Jerusalem was not just one army conquering another. It was God's wrath in Christ being poured out upon that city. That's the witness of all of Scripture. Job 12.23, he makes nations great, he destroys them. Amos 3.6, does disaster come upon a city unless the Lord has done it? But you say, Pastor Josh, you haven't proved that God does this for the sake of his people. You've proved that he does it, but where is it for the sake of his people? Ah, but that's just it. God cuts off the wicked nations like a gardener cuts off wicked and diseased branches so that the rest of his, the plant can flourish. Um, in, in Jeremiah 24, when God is describing the Babylonian captivity to Jeremiah, he's saying, look, What I've done is I've separated the good figs from the bad figs. The bad rotting figs are the king, the wicked king, and all of his false prophets. And the good ripe figs are all of my people, my elect exiles. Jerusalem had become too rotten, so I threw Babylon at them, and now the bad figs are going to be eaten up, and the good figs are going to be saved. 
And the same thing is true about AD 70. Jerusalem was the most wicked nation on the face of the planet. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 23. And so he sends the Roman army against them. Well, what happens to God's people? What happens to the Christians then? Well, that's what Revelation 7 is all about. The 144,000 God rescued out of Jerusalem. His elect people who had the seal on their head, they were preserved while the rest of Jerusalem was destroyed. Jerusalem had become a den of iniquity and a house of slavery. And that's what God has always been doing. The covenant of grace is the framework for all of history. There's a war between the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman, and God is making the seed of the woman conquer. So that's our doctrine. That God overthrows wicked nations for the sake of preserving, protecting, and propagating his beloved. So now let's look then at our duty. First duty this morning is simply to examine ourselves. I asked the question a couple weeks ago, Who are we in this story, in the book of Exodus? And I said that if we scoff and roll our eyes at the stupidity and the rebellion of the Israelites, that we are accusing ourselves because we are the Israelites. We're not the heroes. But this passage actually cuts us even deeper than that. Beloved, before... God's grace found you. You were Pharaoh. I was Pharaoh. Think about these seven characteristics. Which one of these things were you not guilty of? Pharaoh broke covenant. He betrayed Joseph. Loved ones, who have you betrayed? Who have you broken faith with? Does God count your lies less damning than Pharaoh's lies? Revelation 21.8 says, but as, the faith, but as for the faithless and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Pharaoh hated the cultural mandate. He hated children. Have you ever been guilty of hating children? Your children. Have you ever put your own ambition, your own selfishness ahead of your children? Psalm 127.3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Have you despised the heritage of the Lord? Pharaoh demanded worship. He acted like a god. When was the last time that you put yourself in the center of your universe and demanded that everybody in your orbit serve you? Jonah 2.8 says, those who worship false gods turn their backs on all of God's mercies. Pharaoh was covetous and greedy. He provided for his own needs at the expense of others. Generous was never a word that was attributed to Pharaoh. Are you generous or are you covetous? Ephesians 5.5 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. 
Pharaoh was ruthless and heartless. Beloved, whose blood have you spilt? Or perhaps you've only murdered people with your mouth. 1 John 3.15 says, Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know not that no murder and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Pharaoh was willingly stupid. He knew that God was opposing him, and yet he rebelled against him anyway. How many times have you done that where your conscience is saying, Stop, no, God forbids this, and you run into that sin? You see, like Pharaoh, you and I deserve to have our names blotted out of the book of life. You and I deserve to go unnamed into the abyss and have the memory of us perish. That's what we deserve. But beloved, praise be to God. Thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ that God did not allow you to continue to be a little Pharaoh. Yes, he passed over Pharaoh of old and he let him perish. But shockingly, though you have the same guilt, though you were damned, God rescued you from the fire and put his name on you, not by ignoring your sin, but by sending his only begotten son into the world. Who is this son? He is God, the mighty God, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, author of life. And this divine person put on flesh, and his name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he was not only mad as hell at Pharaoh's sins, but he was mad at yours. And so what did he do? He became a slave. He became a servant. Philippians 2, 7, that he says that he made himself nothing. He became a servant, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Who did he become a servant for? For himself? No, for your sake, beloved. Because unless you obtain the righteousness of a man who has never sinned, nothing in the world can save you. And that's what Christ did. God in Christ obtained a perfect righteousness for you. He obeyed God to earn a righteousness not for himself but for you. Philippians 3.9 says that we do not have a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So you receive his righteousness by faith. What did he receive from you? All of your damnable sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the very righteousness of God. Every time you look in the mirror now, you can see the righteousness of Christ looking back at you. Jesus became Pharaoh incarnate on the cross when all of your iniquity was imputed to him. He became a curse and died for you. He bore your sins on the tree. He was buried and he rose again on the third day to claim victory over death. And he did all of that. Though you were just, though, though you were just as despicable as this man that we're reading about right here. We're only talking about difference of degrees. This passage should bring us to our knees. 
we see our guilt right here. We see our condemnation. We see that what's coming for Pharaoh, and it's not coming for us. It's not coming for us. Praise God, it's not coming for us. Why? Because we are better? No. Because we have a God who is rich in mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together in Christ. So, beloved, those are our two duties this morning. Number one, to examine ourselves, to see that we have been just as guilty as this wicked king. And then secondly, to celebrate the fact that God did not give us the same destiny as this nameless man. So let's look finally at our delight then, as if that wasn't enough. Children, boys and girls, I want to ask you something. If everything that I have been saying is true, if God destroys wicked nations for our sake, if we are so precious in his sight that God would send his only son for us, then why does he allow his people, to suffer so long. Here's the thing. What we don't see in the text is that from the time Israel is oppressed by Egypt to the time of the Exodus in chapter 12, 80 years passes, at least 80 years, probably more like over a century of hard, ruthless slavery. Why did God allow his people to suffer for so long? And we know that God actually turned the heart of Pharaoh against his people. Psalm 105.25 says it, that he turned the heart of the Egyptians against his people. Why all this suffering if God loves his people so much? Two reasons for you. Number one, suffering helped them hate the evil of Egypt. Suffering helped them hate the evil of Egypt. This generation that we're looking at, they got a lot of things terribly wrong. In Joshua 24, 14, it says that they had adopted many of the gods of Egypt. Charles Spurgeon says here, quote, in all probability, if they had been left to themselves, they would have been melted and absorbed into the Egyptian race and lost their identity as God's special people. They were content to be in Egypt, and they began to adopt the superstitions and idolatries and iniquities of Egypt, end quote. Another author asks here, if God had simply prevented their suffering, would the Israelites have ever desired to leave Egypt? It was hard enough to get them to leave even when there was suffering. So let me apply this. Loved ones, how many of your lives drastically changed starting, say, somewhere around 2020? <laughs> you guys, huh? <laughs> how many of us prior to 2020 had started to become Egyptianized? How many of us had subtly, uh, subtly started worshiping some of the gods of the Egyptians, either the god of comfort or the god of autopilot 
or the God of I don't care. And then what did God do to break what did God do to break some of us from those things? He sent COVID, statism. He sent rampant sexual immorality into our culture. And what has that done for the people of God? And I don't think it's just here. I think this is a microcosm of the whole. What did that do? It caused his people to start to hate the world, hate the evil of the world, to long for something else. That's one reason why God allows his people to suffer for long periods, to cause us to hate the evil of Egypt, this world, and to be separate from it. The second reason is that suffering helped them to long for salvation. Suffering helped them to long for salvation. If you remember from Genesis, God had already promised to make Israel a nation. This was to be the nation that was to give birth to Christ. Had Israel been assimilated into Egypt, the seed of the woman would have been lost. And Israel, up to this point, seemed to have no inclination to leave Egypt at all. For many of them, it had been the only home that they ever had. Generations had been born and died in Goshen. Why would they leave? I mean, as a whole, Israel wasn't even praying to leave. The first time that the scripture records their prayer is in chapter 2, after they had been given over to slavery and after their children had been thrown in the Nile. Then they started praying. Loved ones, do you pray for evil to be destroyed and for Jesus to hasten the day when all is well? The perfect day, the perfect week, the perfect month. I'm sure you're just in your prayer closet on your knees saying, oh Lord, please destroy the evil of this place. No, not at all. Our prayer lives are actually in most danger when all is well. Suffering helps us to long for Jesus. It tunes our heart. It it helps us to long to be free from the house of slavery, to be brought into the promised land. Let's conclude then with with one final exhortation. Here's the exhortation. It's really simple. Beloved, hope in God. Christian, hope in God. You are not a defeated people. It does not matter what you see is happening in the world today. Some of you are discouraged because you read the newspaper more than you read your Bible. It doesn't matter what you see in the world. It matters what the word of God says about the world. And what does does God say about the wicked nations today? This is what he says. Ezekiel 12, 13. When a land sins against me by acting faithfully, I will stretch out my hand against it. Hope in God. The nations of today are in God's hands just like the nations in Pharaoh's day. But Pastor Josh, they're persecuting the church. Well, that's true. But what has God promised? This is what he's promised. The more that they persecute, guess what's going to happen to us? The more that we multiply. The more that we're fruitful. The more that we fill the land. 
They're pouring gasoline on the fire. This has always been the case throughout the history of redemption. Charles Spurgeon says this, whenever there's been a great persecution raised against the Christian church, God has overruled it as he did in the case of Pharaoh's oppression against the Israelites. And he makes the aggrieved community more largely increase. The early persecutions in Judea promoted the spread of the gospel. Remember when Stephen was killed, what does it immediately say after that? That they scattered throughout the land and the result, according to scripture, they were scattered abroad and went everywhere preaching the word. When King Herod stretched out his hand and killed James and imprisoned Peter, and then Herod was struck down, what does the word say? It says that the word of God grew and multiplied. The more that they attack the church, the more that the church increases in the land. So, beloved, hope in God. Be patient in suffering. We have nothing to fear. It's the world who's afraid. Just like Egypt dreaded Israel, the world today dreads the church. And just as Pharaoh stupidly waged war against God and failed, we can expect the same thing. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the relevance of your word. That there's nothing more relevant that we could be picking up this morning and looking at and listening to. We thank you that your word speaks to our, our current situation. We thank you that your word interprets our lives. Help us to have confidence, Lord, from what we are seeing here today in this passage. Confidence in you, confidence in Christ. Confidence that whatever the enemy does, you will turn it against them for the good of your people. For we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.